chapter two now, they they give us a brief history of apologetics. And uh, they say a brief history, but boy, do they go through a lot of folks with regard to apologetic history. And so we probably won't get through this particular chapter uh, in this section, but let's at least get started and maybe we can, we can move on from there. So chapter two, a brief history of apologetics. Uh, they say that while apologetics or defenses of the Christian faith go all the way back to the first century, uh, the formal science of apologetics is a more recent development. And so in this chapter, they're going to survey the history of apologetics in three stages. First, we'll discuss in some detail apologetics in the New Testament itself. Second, we'll give detailed attention, they tell us, to the thought of the leading apologists prior to the Reformation. And so notably here, they're going to I'll focus on Augustine, uh, Anselm, and Thomas Aquinas. The so three those are, Yeah, that's right. Triple yeah. uh, A apologetics. <laughs> <laughs> and so what? So those were the leading apologists prior to the Reformation. And then, of course, thirdly, uh, they're going to present a more cursory overview, they tell us, of apologetics from the Reformation to the present. So that's where this chapter is, is headed here with regard to this brief history of apologetics, these right. three different breakups, we might say, of apologetic history. New Testament itself, uh, from the from the first century up to the Reformation, and then from the Reformation to the present. Right. So uh, we start where all good apologetics starts, which is uh, scripture. And so we start uh, apologetics in the New Testament. So although perhaps none of the New Testament writings should be classified as a formal apologetic treatise, most of them exhibit apologetic concerns. Most of them is, is de defending the faith in some way. It's defining it. It's it's uh, 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 giving reasons for why you should believe. Or uh, if th this is not true, then you know we're all worthless people, and the sin is still on us. And so uh, we, we've we've got to find some other way. Or uh, that there's some application uh, that uh, we need to be persuaded. If if you believe this, then uh, this is the result. And so. Um, while not uh, 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 kind of a, a textbook example of apologetics, uh, there's still uh, uh, evidences of apologetics within the scope of the New Testament. So the New Testament writers anticipate and answer objections and seek to demonstrate the credibility and claims and credentials of Christ, focusing especially on the resurrection of Jesus as the historical foundation upon which Christianity is built. And so uh, they start off with apologetics in Luke and Acts. Uh, so, and they tell us that of all the New Testament writings, the two volumes of Luke, his gospel, and the Acts of the Apostles are the most overtly apologetic in their purpose. Uh, Luke in his prologue, uh, that's in chapter one of the gospel, verses one through four, Luke announces that uh, his work is based on careful historical research and that he will present an accurate record of the origins of Christianity. And, and some folks believe that this was kind of a uh, right. a way to help defend the Apostle Paul as he was, uh, you know, on trial and that's what. Yeah, this is what we talked about uh, in, I believe, chapter one, where we discussed 
you know, what, what apologetics is, and it's a, 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 it could be a written form of the reason for why you were doing the thing that you were doing or not doing. And so here, uh, it's, uh, possible that the gospel of Luke and acts, uh, was, uh, was, uh, kind of attached to the charging documents of, of Paul to, to give a, a, a written record for the reasons why he did the things that he did. Well, in Acts, the motif of Jesus' resurrection as vindication, as fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecies, and the uh, charismatic phenomenon on and after the day of Pentecost are used as uh, cumulative evidences of messianic lordship of Jesus, see Acts uh, 2.36, and of the authority of the, uh, the uh, apostolic truth claims. Along the way, Luke uses the speeches of the apostles to present apologetic arguments to a wide variety of audiences, both Jewish and Gentiles. And this is impressive because uh, um, uh, Dr. Luke is, uh, is is not a Jew himself, but he seems to um, have uh, kind of a, a Greek origin, uh, a Greek language origin, and uh, uh, um, his audience uh, benefits from both uh, being uh, Jews and Gentiles uh, um, um, alike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, Bowman and Bo are now uh, want to highlight at least one of these speeches that Paul gives uh, in the book of Acts, where he addresses the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. And they mention uh, that this has been, uh, you know, extraordinarily important in Christian reflections about apologetics throughout church history, this particular speech that he gives in, in Acts chapter 17, Mars Hill, the Apocalypse. Uh, it's the only substantial example of apology directed to non-Jewish audience in the whole New Testament. Although there's a brief kind of, you know, speech that he gives in Acts 14. Uh, it's just a couple of uh, uh, verses there. This one is obviously substantial. And right. so this, this one speech has traditionally been regarded as a paradigm or model of apologetics, especially with regard to the Gentiles. Right. And you kind of get the uh, same uh, responses that you would uh, get these days. Some laughed, uh, some uh, refused to believe. Uh, others are uh, d- denied uh, outright. Some believed, but then some uh, said, uh, "We'd like to hear m- more from you on this." And so, um, the, the the Mars Hill uh, apologetic uh, is laid out, and uh, from different aspects of the apologetic, the, the kind of the four different apologetic um, avenues that we're going to cover. Um, a lot of pe- a, a lot of people from those four draw back their positions from. Uh, Paul in in uh, in Acts 17 there. Well, the speech was quite unlike those Paul delivered to Jewish audiences, which emphasized Jesus as fulfillment of Old Testament messianic promises and quoted Old Testament proofs texts liberally. Uh, right, so that wouldn't have been able to work with the Gentile audience, right? <laughs> right. right. What, do, you know, what do I care about your other old book that uh, that you guys uh, <laughs> uh, uh, ascribe to? Yeah. Well, in fact, Paul used a form of speech recognized by the Greeks as a philosophical address, such as was commonly used by the Stoics and Cynics of, of, the, of his day. 
Throughout the speech, Paul speaks biblical truths, but uses Stoic terms and argues in Stoic fashion, even quoting a Stoic poet in support of his arguments. And so uh, Paul, uh, being from Tarsus, uh, uh, kind of um, grew up uh, a Roman and so has these influences for both um, the, the the Jewish aspects and the, the the Greek aspects, and one could maybe argue that this was a, a perfect person to save out of the confines of unbelief into uh, of, uh, coming fulfillment of of uh, the scriptures and uh, make him uh, the, the the next apostle. So, who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, go figure, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, essentially, they tell us at the point of this first and longest part of the speech is that idolatry is foolish and that the Stoics themselves has admitted as much, though they have failed to abandon it completely, right? So they know idolatry is foolish, but they still continue to hold on to it. And so Paul uses this inconsistency in Stoic philosophy to illustrate the Athenians' ignorance of God, verse 20. And so having proved his major premise then, Paul uh, announces that God has declared an end to ignorance of his nature and will be revealing himself. And uh, he does this, obviously, through Jesus Christ. Paul concludes that the resurrection, then, is proof of God's intention to judge the world through Christ. And so the result, as you mentioned earlier, of Paul's uh, apology here was that some believe, some scoff, and some express interest which is pretty much the gamut of what we would expect in any, you know, apologetic presentation. Right? Some will believe, right. uh, hopefully, uh, some will reject, and some want to hear more. They expressed interest. Mm -hmm. If if you ever do read uh, um, the Trial and Death of Socrates uh, by by uh, Plato, then uh, the, the 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 way that uh, Socrates argues uh, in there is very similar to, to what uh, the authors are trying to point out of how Paul is arguing here. And so uh, you'll see a lot of that same kind of um, uh, uh, questioning to, to, to get them to address uh, uh, hiccups in their logic. And so um, uh, a, a lot of um, examples can be found uh, in, in, in that book if you're looking for um, further explanation on kind of what uh, how, how Paul is arguing in, in, on Mar Mars Hill there. In fact, uh, that particular Platonic dialogue is called the apology. There you go. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're using our words. Oh, no. That's right. <laughs> Give it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. How about apologetics in Paul's writings? So we, we had Luke. Now let's uh, see if Paul has addressed apologetics in any, anything else that he's written. Considering he wrote, you know, more than half the New Testament, Probably a, a good place to go. Well, closely related to Paul's thoughts in his uh, Athenian address in his arguments on, in Romans 1, Paul takes over Hellenistic Jewish apologetics here on the folly of the Gentile culture. Chapter 1 is, and uh, the first half of chapter 2 deals with this. He then argues that the Jews are not above the same sins as the Gentiles, which is the second half of chapter 2. It, it's a... It's, I mean, Romans, of course, is a, is a masterclass in, in philosophical thought and writing, um, but, but his, his flow in, in, in Romans uh, for the first 12 chapters is just phenomenal to, 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 to read and to, to lay out and to, to write down and, and uh, you know, just try and formalize it. Uh, it's, a, it's a really good experience just to, to write, 
write Romans and, and just kind of have it flow in a, in a written form and see what Paul is doing. Hmm. Well, according to Paul, God's existence and divinity are clearly revealed in nature. All human beings, he says, knew God, but they suppressed the truth, refusing to acknowledge God and failing of, and falling then into idolatry instead. So all, all people worship, all people uh, um, should worship the known God. They don't want to uh, acknowledge this. It's been uh, clearly revealed in, in looking up to the night sky and, and seeing, seeing the complexity of creation or looking inward and seeing the complexity of, of the cells and or, you know, what, what, the, what they understood of life uh, uh, at the time of that writing. Even more so today, uh, we, sh we should be um, uh, awestruck even more. And they've instead have taken down God from his rightful position in, in their hearts and uh, uh, put up uh, any known, uh, whether it be idols of, of man-made wood and stone carvings, uh, the, the, the Greek pantheon, or it, uh, um, they put, put up a mirror and, and worship themselves. So it could be any number of things put in place of God becomes an idol. Right. Exactly. And so they point out here that the statement that people knew God, right, verse 21, has been understood in two ways. Uh, first, it may mean that all people once knew God, but don't uh, any longer. Right? So obviously, from the beginning, people knew God, right, as a result of the beginning of creation. So all people knew God. So it could be uh, considered, you know, the idea that at one time, everybody knew God, and now, of course, they, they no longer knew. That's one way to look at it. In fact, on a, on a couple of occasions in the New Testament, Paul talks about Gentiles not knowing God. <laughs> I think he's talking about it in a different sense here, but that's one way. Secondly, uh, they point out that this term new God may mean that all people in some limited sense know God, but refuse to worship him properly. And uh, they suggest that in support of this view, it's been pointing out that the godless must know something about God in order to suppress the truth about him and refuse to acknowledge it, right? So um, that seems to be what's going on here with regard to this particular um, uh, expression of knowing God. Now, what they're going to suggest, as, as you'll mention here in just a second, they're going to say, well, you can kind of see it in terms of both perspectives. Sure. Right. These these two views can be reconciled in some fashion. Well, the true knowledge of God in which one knows God, not merely knows that there is a God of some kind, was once had by all people, but no longer. That's absolutely true, uh, according to um, uh, our belief system. Well, but then all human beings continue to know that there is a God and continue to be confronted with internal and external evidence for his deity. But generally speaking, they suppress or subvert this knowledge into idolatrous religion of varying kinds. And again, suppression, uh, the, the basketball in, in the pool, you can keep it under, you need to hold it down, and it, it's an it's a effort. But, it, but in some fashion, you're still having physical contact with the ball in order to suppress it. And so in some fashion, the image of God still um, cries out to uh, the people that uh, that they can have um, uh, a, a, a trust in uh, the continuation of of um, the scientific approach 
uh, to understand that uh, the things that happen today will uh, continue on to be like the things of tomorrow in uh, certain categories, uh, that you can have a, uh, a, a confidence that the uh, logic on Alpha Centauri will not change uh, according to the logic here on Earth. <laughs> and then uh, if you murder somebody uh, in in uh, the, the Bahamas, doesn't mean that it's okay uh, uh, where it's not seen as okay in Alaska. So the the scientific, logical, and ethical approach of, of uh, God is communicated through, uh, through humanity uh, in his image. Although, uh, and w- what we covered uh, a little bit last time, in our last book, the noetic effect of sin has uh, subverted uh, that quite severely. So uh, while unbelievers still can use those things and, and have confidence in those things, they don't have the confidence uh, as far as having a uh, reason for uh, trusting in them. So they can do them, but as for having a consistent worldview that accommodates and, and explains them, uh, it, it's not there. Yeah, good. And then finally, they say, with regard to Paul, Paul's letters elsewhere repeatedly deal with the apologetic issues that arose as both Jews and pagans who had confessed Christ and become associated with the churches uh, that Paul founded developed radically different interpretations of the meaning of Christ. And so Paul has to deal with those and meet objections and explanations and that sort of thing. So in this section, we see they have, they're talking about the, the New Testament approaches. We've looked at Luke here um, in uh, his gospel and Acts. Uh, they've dealt now with Paul. Next, uh, they're going to move on to two other New Testament writers, John and Peter. And that will kind of end this particular historical New Testament era with regard to apology. Right. Right, so the Apostle John followed a strategy similar to Paul's adoption of Greek philosophical and religious terms in his gospel, in which the pre-incarnate Christ is called the Logos, the Word, in John 1, 14, and then uh, it's also carried on in uh, 1 John 1, 1. The notion of a pre-existent Word involved in God's creation of the universe had Old Testament associations, right? So uh, what, what does John 1 sound like? Well, John 1 sounds like Genesis 1, sounds like Psalm 33. That, that, that's not uh, that that's not uh, 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 undesigned happenstance. That that that's done, it's that's done purposely. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right, right. That, that, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's a uh, pick your favorite song and your um, uh, <laughs> next favorite artist uh, does a cover song. I think these sound similar. Well, yes, they're, they're, they're supposed to. Still, to any Gentile or Hellenistic uh, Jewish uh, reader, the term logos would have immediately conjured up Platonic and Stoic notions of universal reason that was believed to govern the cosmos and was thought to be reflected in the rational mind of every human being. Right. However, uh, the announcement by John that this Logos was personal, that he was God's son, right, in verses uh, right. <laughs> John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14 and 18, uh, had become, and, and uh, the Logos had become incarnate, Right, had become flesh was shocking to both Jews and Greeks, and it required a completely new way of looking at God and humanity to believe that Jesus was a divine a logos incarnate. So that's kind of John's approach, at least with respect to the first portion of his gospel. He was trying to show that this logo, logos that the Gentiles had at least some notion of what they believed it was was really 
um, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who became man. Right. All right, now uh, we look at, uh, for the, the final aspect of this uh, portion, the apologetic mandate in First Peter. First uh, Peter 3.15, of course, uh, a familiar passage to us. The survey of the New Testament apologetics would not be complete without taking notice of First Peter 3.15, which has been often regarded as the classical uh, biblical statement of the mandate for Christians to engage in apologetics. Peter instructs believers to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Great place to start. He is Lord. Where is he uh, Lord of? He's Lord of all things, but especially more so in your hearts. And so uh, make him Lord of your heart. And from the outflowing of your heart, all things happen from the tongue to the out- outworking of your hands to where your feet go. All those things are are manifested from the heart. And so your changed heart is where you look to first. And that uh, is centered on Christ. So sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be ready to make a defense or an apologia to everyone who asks you to give an account. Logos, the word, for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So three key observations about the text should be made. More so, of course, but three at least key ones that we're going to uh, cover here. All right. So the first one is Peter is definitely instructing believers to make a reasoned defense, right? of their uh, beliefs. The word apologia, while not meaning apologetics in the modern technical sense, doesn't indicate that Christians are to make the best case that they can for their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, right? So they're to make a defense. They're to give a reasoned defense with regard to their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Secondly, this apologetic mandate is given generally notice to all Christians regarding uh, and requiring them to give reasons for faith in Christ uh, to anyone who asks them. So it is focused on not just the professionals, but the mandate is to everybody. It's given to everybody. Right. Right. There's no office of apologists. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Right. You just can't turn, turn all answers over to the pastor. It's his job. You pay him and you walk out the door, uh, you know, dusting off your hands. That, that, just like there's no office of Christian witness, right? right. <laughs> we, we all are to be witnesses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jesus tells us to go to all the nations, and you point to yourself and you go, "Who me?" Yes. <laughs> you and you. Okay, and then the third and final one, Peter instructs us to engage apologetics with proper attitudes towards both the non-Christians with whom we are speaking and the Lord about whom we are speaking about, with gentleness and reverence. The term gentleness indicates the manner in which we are to answer those who challenge our faith. Again, in context, this includes both seekers, those who are, uh, uh, and uh, both those who are seekers, those who um, kind of are more open to it, and those who are antagonistic to the Christian message. And again, uh, coming from the world that um, uh, Peter and Paul and the apostles and the early church are facing, uh, antagonistic uh, is 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 more than just um, uh, mean words on 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 a screen. Um, more than uh, a Twitter mob, uh, th- these are uh, p- people uh, with swords and and daggers and the the full might of Rome behind them for at least about three hundred years. So, <laughs> right. right, gentleness, gentleness and reverence. Uh, uh, you know, a little goes a long way. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> And so notice here, Peter then is telling, he's instructing us to make a reasonable defense, to give an apology. Everybody is to give it. He talks about the proper attitude. First, the attitude of gentleness, right, towards those who are seeking or even those who are antagonistic toward this. 
The second attitude is the, he uses the term reverence, which is um, phobos, almost always translated fear, right? It's translated like respect yeah. here, right? Phobia, that kind of stuff. That's where we get that word uh, in some versions. And this is often understood as referring to the respect toward the people to whom we're speaking. However, our authors tell us, Peter has just said we're not to show phobos toward people in 314. And elsewhere, he says, we are to show phobos toward God, 117 and 217. And so they suggest that almost certainly then, Peter is telling us to conduct our defense of the faith with an attitude of holy fear and reverence toward Christ, whom we honor as Lord. And we do this by striving to be faithful to Christ, both in what we say and, of course, how we live, right? So Peter is suggesting then uh, three different um, uh, mandated ways or key observations with regard to this mandate, right? right? Mandate of Peter. We're to give the defense. We're everybody's to give to the defense. And we're to have the attitude of gentleness toward those that we're giving the defense to and reverence toward Christ, who we are, all practical purposes, defending. Right. And so that's kind of his take with regard to uh, his brief history of apologetics uh, in the New Testament. He goes through Luke's uh, gospel and Acts. He talks about Paul uh, and then uh, approach with regard to apologetics. He talks about John's approach to apologetics. And then finally here, he kind of sums it up with Peter's mandate with regard to apologetics. So that gets us to about year 70 or maybe year 120, if you're going to put late dates, I'm put more on 70. But uh, we have 2,000 years to go through <laughs> after this. So we're going to yeah. pause here and come back in the next episode where we're going to cover uh, the early church fathers and, and, and go on from there. So, um, so uh, we're going to uh, split the, the chapter on this episode and... Uh, uh, if you haven't joined us uh, before, uh, what happens uh, is um, Monday, uh, the full episode comes out, uh, but then uh, individual clips uh, can be found on uh, YouTube, Odyssey, and uh, uh, Rumble. And then you can also uh, go to our website and find the short clips there as well. And they're both in video form or audio. If you don't want to look at us, uh, you can just play the audio uh, with any any links um, uh, below that as well. So uh, there's... Uh, a whole slew of other things to do on on any day that's uh, not Monday as well, and so sometimes uh, those are nice to share out. Sometimes it's uh, it's easier to find that one aspect uh, that you want to kind of go over again, and you can just play that episode. Uh, but uh, also in the description, uh, I've I put the the chapter breaks uh, to to mark out um, kind of different points uh, in in the full episode as well. So a whole lot of ways to to consume content. Uh, that that's what it's all about is generating content. That and we want to encourage you to have a full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So uh, hopefully uh, you enjoy the format and uh, uh, picked up the book and um, uh, will join us next time uh, when we cover the uh, rest of uh, chapter two and continue from there. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. See you next time.